afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Rhonda Gerard. Welcome, Rhonda. Thank you. Living Writers. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's, it's great to see you here. Um, yeah. I should say the program is being taped uh, September 10th, 2008. Uh, we're talking in the morning, and it'll be coming over the air in the afternoon. Um, Rhonda, you're you're just getting back from New York City on part of your book tour, right? Yeah, I read at Blue Stockings, which is this really cool feminist bookstore, um, in the middle of a huge downpour because of Miss Hannah. Oh yes, but it was really fun. Yeah, I really liked it. That's so great. Well, I know that you were. Thanks for thanks for finding time to come on the show. Oh, thanks for asking me. You're here teaching at Michigan mm-hmm. right now, right? Well, let's um let's read. I'll read the bio from your your book, A Map of Home. Uh, this is your debut novel. Yes, isn't it? A Map of Home. Okay. Rhonda Gerard grew up in Kuwait and moved to the U.S. after the first Gulf War. Her award-winning fiction has appeared in Plowshares and numerous journals and anthologies. She is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, the University of Texas at Austin, and the University of Michigan, where this book won a Hopwood Award. <laughs> she currently lives in Ann Arbor. Uh, for this, we are grateful. A Map of Home is her first novel. All right. It's a beautiful cover, too. Oh, thank you. How did you feel when you saw stacks of it at Shaman Drum and Borders and when it, because it just came out this September 2nd, right? Yes, it did. Um, Just on the cover really quick, that's my friend Joe Nami's artwork. Um, I was on his site uh, just looking at his stuff, you know, and I saw that piece and I loved it. And I just thought, that wouldn't that rock if that were my cover? And then I emailed it to my publisher and... The, one of the great things about going with a small publisher, an hour later, I got a response all in caps. Yes, we will. We will do it. Oh, that so, is wonderful. And yeah. So, and um, just just for those listening, um, it's it's a picture of a part of a, a woman's eye. It looks like pointillism, uh, mm-hmm. sort of blown up, black and white, and then around. Can you describe what's around her head? Rhonda? Yeah, it's sort of um, playing on a lot of the stereotypes that Arabs have about the Middle East, or I'm sorry, Arabs have about the U.S., <laughs> And maybe Americans have about the Middle East. So um, there's a sort of barn, maybe in Texas, a tank, an airplane, a flipped over Jeep, uh, a couple dozen bottles of Sprite. I see the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) And the Statue of Liberty, a baseball player, some apple pie, um, someone maybe in Guantanamo, uh, and some apartment buildings. Yeah. Yeah, and then but but the 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 young woman um, the main focus. Yes. Which would be a, a good indicator of 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 who's who our main protagonist will be throughout your novel. Uh, yes. A map of home. Yeah, and I mean this isn't exactly maybe I mean I wasn't picturing this super sexy lady when I was writing about Nadali, but you know. It works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so pick up your copy of uh, A Map of Home at Borders or Shaman Drum with a super sexy lady on the cover. That's oh, how yeah. you know you've got the right book in your hands. So work, and it's other press that, that yes. published the book, right, yes. Rhonda? Mm-hmm. Um, and so how, can you talk a little bit about the experience? Like why did you decide to go with other press? What was the, the rhythm of um, the production uh, of the novel? How long is this this book been in the works for you? Seven years. Um, I started this seven years ago, maybe seven and a half years ago, and I finished a draft 
five years ago. And I sent it out. My agent sent it out, um, got a couple of nibbles, but nobody was, you know, willing to publish it just yet. So and you had the agent because you already had short stories placed. Is that correct? Yeah. And I, I, I actually have a friend who um, recommended me to the agent. So that's how that worked out. And um, yeah. And so five years ago, uh, I had to do a major revision and then another major revision. So probably two and a half major revisions until um, other press picked it up. Was that in response to comments that you received back when the agent initially sent it out, Rhonda? Or was it just something that you were you were in the you were working with the book? So you were already in I think it nodding, was, but <laughs> yeah, I think it was a combination um, between, you know, people, editors saying sort of the same thing. Um, and at the same time, me growing a little more as a writer and realizing that the draft that I had finished was maybe a second draft or a third draft and really needed to be um, polished a lot more. So it was a combination of things. But um, I think, I think, I mean, according to people who read the first draft, this isn't that drastic of a change. So what I did was streamline a lot of the chapters and um, maybe work on the voice a little more, but you know, essentially it's the same the same manuscript. Well, the voice comes through so strongly. It's a, it's a wonderful voice to spend some time with. Um, well, before we get into the, the uh, meat and potatoes of the, the novel, uh, A Map of Home itself, Rhonda, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about you because the bios in the back of the book, they're always uh, pithy, uh, <laughs> right? So, um, so I was on your website earlier, and is, could you, you want to tell the listeners in case they want to head to the website? Uh, it's rockslinga.blogspot.com, so like someone who slings rocks, R-O-C-K-S-L-I-N-G-A, a little play with linga, too, um, dot blogspot.com. And what is, what is linga? What is, what is that? Well, rockslinga. Well, get and then, that. You know, I get the, the... And then linga, like a little bit of the... Lang- uh, love of language. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. Okay. I love that it was Roxling because I felt like you were bringing the fight to them in a way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so uh, when I was looking at your website earlier on, I noticed that there was a, a great timeline that you had um, in there. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a great chronology to have on your website to fill in. Because um, I think there's one moment in it where you said, and this is when I started doing things earlier than usual yeah my so yeah I think it was the 19 so yeah it's a chronology every year I of my life or roughly the one the important ones I say you know something you know fabulous that happened or terrible and then I think it was 1982 I start school on my journey of nerddom and doing things too early begins because I started first grade when I was four um, because my parents are wonderful people. <laughs> and why is that? Because at that point, you'd already moved several times, too. I think mm-hmm. it's important to talk about your biography, uh, if you don't mind. No, um, not at all. You were born in Boston. No, I was. Oh, I'm my character was born in Boston. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm getting confused. <laughs> ah. Fiction. <laughs> exactly. Uh, completely fiction. Yes. What am I thinking? <laughs> um, I was born in Chicago. My parents Chicago. Um, were there briefly for, my dad was doing an internship at an architecture at an architectural firm, and um, so I was born there. And we moved to uh, Kuwait um, maybe six weeks later, um, and that's where I grew up. Um, and then in 1990, after the after Iraq invaded Kuwait, we were there briefly, and then we left um, through Iraq 
uh, to Jordan where, you know, within hours it was clear that my mom would never want to live there. And then we flew, we left, you know, all of our stuff behind and flew to Egypt where we ended up living in my mom's really small beach apartment in Alexandria. So... And, and how old were you then, Rhonda? Which I was almost 13. 13 then. Yeah. Um, and so you had to, your family had to leave everything behind mm-hmm. in, in Jordan, it sounds like. Well, we left. You had your belongings with you until that point? We took, we took essentials with us, but most of our stuff was still in Kuwait. So uh, we packed, we had a van, and so we packed it with essentials, like, um, I don't know, some clothes and like, you know, some fabulous rugs that my parents were really in love with that we had to take with us. Well, because if you throw a rug down, then some, it can feel a little bit more like home, can't yeah. it? It's yeah. Almost That's instantly. And so, and so then you were in Alexandria, Egypt, mm-hmm. and um, and and then can you give us another where you went from there? Uh, and then I moved with my family uh, to New York to White Plains, um, and then a year later we moved to Greenwich because White uh, White Plains wasn't white enough apparently for my parents, so we had to move to Greenwich. <laughs> wasn't white enough? <laughs> no. Oh boy. Yeah. There's so, so. many stories here. The layers of the <laughs> yes, story. Yes, yes, layers and layers, and and then after living. Um, in Greenwich for a couple of years. I went to school at Sarah Lawrence in New York, and then I moved to Texas when I was 20. And and how so. old were you when, to, when you went to Sarah Lawrence? 16. 16, mm-hmm. when you enrolled as a college freshman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then Texas came later. Yeah, Texas came when I was 20. I went there for grad school and to escape. In my bio, it says to escape family and ex, which is very honest. That's one of the reasons I moved all the way to Texas. Well, sometimes it takes a, a lot of space between people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if you even make it it's into Texas, it, that's a given that you're going to have some space yes, between that's things. that's true. Right? Yes. So that was a bit, was that a bit shocking to go to Texas or, or what did that do uh, to your, I don't know, your history think, that you're making for yourself at this point? I think it was physically shocking because I, it was August when I moved there and it was literally, you know, shocking because I... I don't think my body was quite ready for it to be like 105 or whatever it was outside. And my son was 20 months at the time and he was really, really, really red for the first hour and a half we were there and I filled up a tub and (laughs) put him in a really cold bath. Um, So yeah, I think it was physically shocking, but uh, it was really great. I mean, it was final. I, I felt free basically for the first time in my life. So it felt really good. Because you had distance from your ex and also your, your my parents, family. your mm-hmm. family. And, and who else is in your family? Should we round out the picture? A mother, a father? Yeah, brother and sister. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it was just great for me to have my own place. I mean, I'd never really had my own place. So... You know, this was the first time I had, I mean, it, it was an old barracks. The university housing there uh, was like these series of old barracks that were made out of red brick. So it was that kind of own place. It was a military. Uh, Ooh, so austere. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. I still, you know, I didn't care. I put up my Dr. Zhivago posters, man. I was, you know. And it was yours. It was your Yeah, own. it was mine. A place and a desk and a place to write, yeah. probably. Okay, yeah. well, let's take a short break, Rhonda, and we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Rhonda Gerard, A Map of Home. We'll be back. Rechta. 
back. You're listening to Living Writers. Uh, today, Rhonda Gerard with her novel, A Map of Home. Um, Rhonda, will you read a piece of the book for yeah, us? Yeah, I'll read something from the early going. Um, Mama liked to say you could never judge how people might have turned out. For her, aforementioned superstitionist par excellence, if things hadn't happened exactly the way they'd happened, one out of three people involved would invariably be dead. If we'd stayed in America the first time, she'd say, maybe I would have believed that women's liberation thing and left your baba. Then we would have lived off my pitiful salary as a concert pianist at the local TGIF. Ah, no, no, this is a nightmare already, my daughter, no. Things always turn out for the better in the end. Allah wills it so. As Mama said this, I'd be fantasizing about growing up in Boston with cool people, a giant three-foot-long latchkey hanging around my neck. Only four years old, I'd come home from daycare and pour myself a bowl of cereal. It could have been like that Bill Withers song, just the two of us, poor and Arab. People would have assumed that Mama, who has kinky black hair, brown skin, dark green eyes, and wears a lot of gold, was a Latina, and that I, a cracker-looking girl, was her daughter from a union with a gringo, and that would have been that. But Mama's an Egyptian, her mother was a Greek, my father is a Palestinian, and my parents didn't stay in America on account of my yaya, my Greek grandma and the reason that I sort of look like a cracker, dying of a brain tumor at the old age of 56. They didn't stay in Boston. They returned on the Egypt airplane with me and, Mama, me and Baba's lap. Mama curled up inside herself, and yaya's ghost jammed in between them. They returned cheerless in 70s polyester pants and straightened hair to bury my yaya at the Greek cooperative cemetery in Alexandria. In Egypt, I played with a set of Russian dolls my dead yaya once gave my mama. I pretended to be the smallest Russian doll, the empty-bellied one that goes in her mama, the mama that gets cradled in her mama, and so on. I knew that the biggest doll, the biggest mama on the outside, was Greek, but that I wasn't Greek. I noticed that all the dolls were split in half except me, even though I was split in half. I was Egyptian and Palestinian. I was Greek and American. My little blue passport, the one that looked nothing like Mama's medium green one or Baba's big brown one, said I was American. I didn't have to stand in a different line at airports yet, but soon I would. And Mama would stand in a different line, and Baba would stand in yet another line. It would make me feel all alone and different. It would make me believe that the world wanted to split up my family, so I'd pull to them even more. After burying my grandma, we left Egypt and went to Kuwait, where Baba's new job awaited him. Kuwait in the 70s was a haven for Arab intellectuals and for people who wanted to live in apartments that did not resemble shelters. Baba said that moving was part of being Palestinian. Our people carry the homeland in their souls, he would tell me at night as he tucked me in. This was my bedtime story when I was three, four. You can go wherever you want, but you'll always have it in your heart. I think to myself, that's such a heavy thing to carry. I'd visited this homeland once, noticed that there was a lot of grass, several rocks and mountains, and thousands of olive trees and donkeys. It helped me to know this when I was a little girl, forced me to have compassion for Baba, who, obviously, had an extremely heavy soul to drag around such inside such a skinny body. Thank you, Rhonda. That was actually that's one of my favorite lines. Um, that moment where um, the Nadali, am I saying her yeah, name correctly? Nadali. Nadali. Yeah. She says um, that must be a pretty heavy thing to carry around, mm-hmm. c- c- referring to carrying around the homeland mm-hmm. in your soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a wonderful moment. Thank you. Um, 
So when you were writing this, there's obviously this really um, funny and and wise for beyond her years voice that's that's guiding us from the very beginning because you didn't you didn't start us off right at chapter one mm-hmm. um, but but Nadali is literally introduced with her her birth mm-hmm. and the and Baba thinks her father Baba thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, that she'll be a boy at first, and, he hopes. and so the mm-hmm. surprise, and she's not. And then, um, but uh, with this story, where you um, you've got this story to tell about a, a young girl mm-hmm. and coming of age and growing up, um, mm-hmm. but then you also have this uh, these uh, historical political aspects to the book, um, which we heard parts of in what you chose to read us, Rhonda. So what was it like working with that um, as well as the the story, the narrative itself? Well, I think, um, I mean, the main reason I think I wanted to write this book was because when I was, you know, when I was an undergrad and when I was younger, I would look, you know, I would go to all these libraries and I would try, try to interlibrary loan all these books um, that I hoped would sort of mirror my experience, right? And so there was a lot of searching going on, and that's one of the reasons I ended up really falling in love with Arabic literature, African-American literature, and reading stories by Latinas and, you know, other uh, hyphenated Americans. And <clears throat> But I couldn't obviously find a story that was you know, precisely my story. Like I was thinking, why hasn't anyone written about someone who's part Palestinian, part Egyptian, part Greek, who who grew up in Kuwait, who moved here after the first Gulf War? Why isn't anyone writing about this? <laughs> someone should be. And so, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, I mean, that's why I wrote it is because I think I had this realization, obviously, that no one was going to do that and that I had to do it. And so, and you know, I've always loved writing and I studied as an undergrad. So it's not like I had this moment, like I should write a book. Um, but that's when I found out that that should be my, my subject. Um, and then the political stuff, I mean, so you found your subject before you had this, this kind of that grand idea about writing a novel. Yeah, I think so. And, um, I think, I think the political stuff is sort of, it's almost incidental. It's just, it's just sort of the way I grew up and the way the people around me did. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it's just personal. So it comes out as political, but it's really just personal history that, you know, obviously is connected to the larger political. Right. Well, world. if it's your, if it's like the characters, if it comes in so naturally as the character's bedtime story mm-hmm. from when there are three saying right. that it's, it's your, you're to move. That's mm-hmm. just part of who you are as a, as a human being mm-hmm. is to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Then that seems like it would be naturally entering the story. Whereas, and that's the story of Palestinians. Right. right. So, yeah. yeah. And I think it's definitely Nadali's story because this is a character that is constantly moving. um, And she moves only to, you know, figure out that she has to move again. So every time she moves, you know, and tries to settle down, it's only natural that she'd have to sort of pull roots out and start over. Um, And I think that ends up being who she is. You know, she's someone who um, is at home with herself because that's really the only the self becomes the home and that's why it seemed like that would be a coming of age story was you know the perfect sort of um way to structure the realization of that Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is a nice moment. I feel like there is a time when Nidali starts to realize that maybe quarter way through the book, but she's realizing it about maybe her, her parents or not yet right. herself right. yet early on in the book. Um, when did you first hear um, her voice? Because her voice is very has a yeah. very clear uh, like rhythm and tone to it. Um, when What were some of the pieces when she actually was speaking, started speaking to you? Okay, well, I'll just give you like a little bit of background about how I wrote this book. Um, Great. (laughs) um, What a good question. (laughs) Uh, So I had, uh, don't tell anyone. (laughs) It's just between you, me and Alex, Uh, the engineer. (laughs) I had started an MFA program and a couple of weeks in, this is in Texas, I realized that that wasn't going to work out for me. Um, I was 22 and I had a baby and all the classes were at night. It was a nightmare. So I quit. And, um, uh, was this at at Texas at Austin? Texas State, actually. Oh, Texas, Texas State. State. Okay. Yes. And um, someone very very generous uh, helped me out, and you know, told me, "Well, you need to." Well, okay, I'll just tell the story. Um, Leslie Silco was teaching there, and um, she had read some of the pieces I'd written, and she said, "I think there's a novel here, and I think you really need to take." time off and really focus on this novel. So uh, she told me, you know, I can help you out. I can financially help you as long as you, you know, are going to really work on this book. And I said, yes, of course. And so she did. And I moved in while well, I was living in an <clears throat> apartment at the time. And um, for a couple of months, I started writing. And it was still fragmented, not really. I mean, the voice wasn't, it was third person. And when it was first person, it was too much like me. Or, you know, it was too sad. And then I moved into a trailer um, in Kyle, which was at the time a very small town, 5,000 people. And I uh, was sitting around in this brass bed that had, like, it was broken in the middle, but that was my bed. And I remember I was sitting in it and thinking, and her voice came to me right away. And it was that first line. I don't uh, know how I came to know this story, and I don't remember, I don't know how I can possibly still remember this story, um, et cetera. And so I got up and went to this computer, which I hadn't even paid for yet. <laughs> it was this, this weird gateway computer. And I sat down <laughs> in this tiny, tiny room where you could literally touch both sides of the room if you stretch your arms out. Um, and I wrote what basically has ended up being like the first, you know, eight or nine pages of, of, of the book. I mean, I revised it, obviously, but so her voice came to me like that, just in a rush, very, very, she was very profane and sassy and just no, didn't take, you know, no, wasn't messing around. And so I thought, well, maybe this is it, maybe. And then that turned out to be it. After months of trying with other voices, it was actually Nadali's voice that needed to tell this story. So, And which became the anchor, because it is mm-hmm. the beginning of the mm-hmm. book there. Um, and so why... Since it was so strong, Ron, why do you think that you you tried to keep? What were? Why did you think some of these other voices should have? Did you think other voices, um, like Baba's voice or Mama's voice or Gamal, like somebody else would have equal time to get a different perspective? Why why were you still willing to consider other voices if this was so strong? Um, well, I haven't found I hadn't found this one yet. I think that's what it was. Um, so, but I think I think I was really worried about writing a novel in the first person, especially a novel that was so close to my historical and cultural background because of a lot of the questions that I am already getting on my book tour. Someone asked me, well, but that's not your name. I remember (laughs) I was in, I think it was in Boston a couple of, like last week, someone said, you know, I read the beginning and they said, but that's not your name. (laughs) That's great. And I said, it's, 
fiction. And I'm sure I looked like really monstrous and angry when I said it, but <laughs> I said, well, it's fiction. And so I think that's well, one just of the like reasons. me saying, oh, well, Boston, you were born in Boston. Right. You're but like, that's okay. No, it's that's Chicago. Okay. Your tea. It's okay. <laughs> You're kind. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Rhonda Gerard, A Map of Home. afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and if you're just joining us, just tuning in or clicking on that stream, um, Rhonda Jar is here in the studio with her debut novel, A Map of Home. And whenever I announce um, an author's book, I'm always looking at the book very, very excitedly. <laughs> this is a great book, and you can pick one up at Shaman Drum or Borders. Um, you're going to be reading at Shaman Drum, right? Yeah, Monday, Monday uh, the 15th at 7 o'clock, I'm going to be reading, so please come out. So this coming Monday, mm -hmm. September 15th, 7 mm -hmm. p.m., um, so nice. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. And what, because you've probably been to many readings there by this point, right, Ron? Yeah. So. <laughs> and I'm kind of worried because at a lot of the, those readings, I'm sort of staring off <laughs> and zoning out. And so. Well, maybe it so, was the temperature. Maybe it was. Right, there. right, <laughs> right. So, so yeah, I, I'm going to be able to tell if you guys aren't paying attention to me. No. Right. You'll know what to look for. That's yeah. for sure. Right. Yeah. No, this will be, this is a captivating story. So I'm sure you'll have everyone's attention. And um, so, yeah, let's go back to what we were talking about right before the break, mm -hmm. Rhonda, where you dealing with, cause you've been, let's say you've been to New York city and you've been mm -hmm. to the Harvard bookstore already. Mm -hmm. So you've had, were there other points on the, in Atlanta as well? I went to the Decatur book festival in Atlanta. Yeah. So, and have you been doing other radio interviews or talking with people? I, oh, I saw that you got, um, a review in people magazine. I did. Four stars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually it's on, I have to brag. It's on the same page as, um, any, as the, the review for Annie Prue's new book. And I got, I got more stars. Really? So. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a really surreal moment. I was, um, I was in Harvard Square. Well, I got, I was talking to my publicist and she told me about it and I kind of thought, great, but I didn't believe it until I saw it. So I went to the Harvard bookstore or the Harvard Square and was at a newsstand 
and asked this really cute guy who was working behind the counter to go try to find me People Magazine, <laughs> telling him the whole time that I didn't like People Magazine that much. Right, exactly. You're in Harvard and you're reading exactly. your People Magazine. <laughs> it was really crazy. He found it for me and I looked at the review and it just felt so amazing. And so I just, yeah, I just I have to say it feels vindicating because this book sort of sat around for two and a half years um, at the publisher because they had a really long list or something. And um, and it's... Wow, that's a long time yeah. to wait. After it was accepted, mm-hmm. Rhonda, you're mm-hmm. saying, at yeah. other press, then it, you, you wait. Mm-hmm. And before then, I'd waited for two and a half years for even anyone to bring it. So there was really... I really wasn't... Sh- I think I'd given up um, three... A little over three years ago. And so... On this particular novel. Well, on it coming out. not on, on it writing. Out. No, no, no. No. Um, yeah. no. <laughs> just, just on this book coming out, this particular book. And then... So now that it has, and now that it's getting this really great attention, it's somewhat surreal, um, but it feels really good. Yeah. And, and how interesting, too, that you had this moment where you had that vindication, in a way, with a stranger in right. a square. Right. Well, this is what he right? said. He said, um, well, what's your book about? I can't do a Boston accent. I wish I could. <laughs> and I said, oh, it's a coming-of-age novel set in the Middle East in Texas. I've, <laughs> I've memorized it. <laughs> a nice soundbite. Yeah, exactly. And then he said, you know, he paused, and then he said, well, I can relate to that, being a guy who grew up in New England. Well, he, I think he was joking. Uh, yeah. And then I sort of just gave him these puppy dog eyes, and he said, but I came of age. <laughs> right. So He can connect to it, too. Yeah. I'm thinking that hopefully that's the connective strand. That's what's going to connect readers to it, is that even though it is a very, very specific story, I'm hoping it's, you know, because it's so specific, it'll be universal, and, you know, people will still find ways to really, I mean, people are relating to it, so. Oh. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't had the struggle with their parents, yeah. right? I <laughs> well, love- whoever they are, I hate that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're hated by many, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but so, so when you've been on this this tour and talking with people, and have have, there, have you been on panels for the book yet, Rhonda? Because I, I I know I've seen you at AWP on other you know on another yeah. panel. But um, I was on a panel at Indicator with Haji, who's hysterical. He's he wrote. Uh, some BET show called Somebodies. And um, so he'd written a memoir about growing up in the South and growing up in, with his crazy parents, too. So, But it was a memoir. So I think a couple of people were th- asking me, like... Blurring the lines. Yeah. Between. So how are you coping with that since since some of your, your autobiography, the places where you grew up uh, and moved to, mm-hmm. you, are in are the story mm-hmm. that's being told? Oh, yeah. How are you coping with separate getting people to realize that it's... You know, it's not your story specifically. It's fiction. I think I've sort of given up on that. I think I can't, I obviously can't make readers think that there's a separation. I personally can't demarcate the separation very well. I can't. I mean, it would take hours and hours of me being like, well, see, in this story, the way that's really happened is, you know, um, my dad didn't kick my my mom out in the car out of the car in the desert. He actually did it in Austria when I was this age and it traumatized me and this is how I want to write about it and actually my mom isn't like this and my dad isn't really... I mean, it's Mm -hmm. really hard to really break it down for readers um, specifically how it veers away from my own personal history so I think I'm, you know, it's sort of like that Mary McCarthy, the memoirs of a Catholic girlhood where she spends a footnote that's essentially the size of the 
chapter preceding it saying, actually, this didn't happen this way. I just remembered this way. This is how it really happened. This is how it feels like it happened or a way to talk about it that would, yeah. Right. So I feel... I feel like it's tough. I mean, one of the reader, one of my readers, who's someone I've been emailing with for a long time, came to um, the Decatur Book Festival and she said, "Why didn't you write a memoir?" And I said, "I mean, I just answered as honestly as I could. I love to lie. I love to make things up. I love to fib, and you know that's." one of the reasons. And that's also a trait given to Nadali as well. At least we're introduced right. to the, the, the aspect of white lies pretty early oh, yeah, on. Right? Yeah, that's true. And, the story and she telling. meets, and her boyfriend, uh, Fakhreddin, is a big liar. Um, <laughs> right. From the get-go. From the get-go. In detention. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I've, you know, I obviously, yes, I had a boyfriend at that time, and he's not Fakhreddin, but he did lie to me once. This real life boyfriend, and so in the book, he's a huge liar. <laughs> so everything—I mean, I just think everything is exaggerated, and everything is, you know, um, a, a funhouse mirror version of real life. So because well, it's that blend, isn't it, of fiction? Like, write what you know. We've been given that as a directive, and then it's um, imagination. Uh, get, get, let your your mind go mm-hmm. where it will, and so the blend mm-hmm. of that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because the the parents, Baba and Mama, I, I did wonder if they had similar, because it was such a, a, it seemed like to me an important part of the the book where they were, where Nadali says at one point they're in failed artists and why is that, you know, is that why they're pushing me towards a life that doesn't include that type of disappointment? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so I did wonder at that point, I wonder how, or if that had another manifestation in your life, some other guard against taking this path yourself. Well, I mean, ironic. I, my parents were are really, really supportive of my writing. I mean, they've always, ever since I was little, which you say in the acknowledgments, yeah, have said, you know, you're a writer. I mean, they just they never said you're gonna be a writer or you would make a good writer. They just said you're a writer. And I actually that's have, an amazing difference, isn't they were it? Great. Yeah. yeah, and I have this passport that I made when I was <laughs> a little younger than my son's age, and it it really Angelo I love now like younger than a little young, yeah he's yeah. 11 and a half so I was probably 10 or so when I made this passport and it really reflects like all my all my cultural confusion and all my identity crises that I was going through at that at that time um, so it's like an American passport but the nationality says Jordanian because there's no such thing as Palestinian um, and then I think I have my eye color weird like I think I say chestnut it's just but anyway under occupation it says author so even as a 10 year old I think I was this was something that I really wanted to do. Whereas Nadali, you know, her parents don't want her to suffer and they don't want her to um, go through the disappointments that they went through. You know, Baba's a poet who obviously couldn't make it, especially, I mean, you, you can't really make it anywhere, but definitely not in the Arab world, being a poet. And um, so he's an architect in the book. Right, right. And I'm, when I say make it, I mean like maybe support three kids by, um, or two kids, you know, by reciting poetry. Right, there's a place in the halls. culture for it, but it's right, not definitely. a huge funded. And then the mother is a pianist who does it sort of in secret. She plays music, but she doesn't ever play for anyone. So they're both <clears throat> trying to, you know, they, they couldn't find a way to really do what they love, um, so they don't want Nadali to go through the same thing. Mm-hmm. So... So in the way that, because there's, there's terrible moments with both of them in some ways in the book, but then there's this pathos and, and deep tenderness Mm -hmm. that you can see. So in a way that's a nice truth. 
about parenthood. Um, <laughs> as I try to sound like some child psychiatrist now or something, don't be confused if you're just tuning in. It is living writers. It's not child psychiatry hour. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, today we're talking um, about Rhonda Gerard's first novel, A Map of Home, uh, put out by Other Press. Um, you can pick it up. It's new. It's hot off the press. And Rhonda will be reading at Shaman Drum this coming Monday at 7 p.m. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. <laughs> You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, um, and we're at the great station of WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Um, what a great place. The best. <laughs> I've been listening to the station. I know this is probably in really poor taste, but often when I've been driving around recently, and I'm just so proud of it. <laughs> you should be. You ought to be. <laughs> nice. This, but it is in bad taste. Let me just red flag this moment. <laughs> Maybe there's some way we could edit this out later, Alex. And thanks to, while I'm thinking of it, thanks to Alex Bellhodge for um, coming in this morning and engineering us. Thank you, Alex Hetzel. Thanks, Alex. Um, if we were wearing hats, we'd be taking them off. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so back to back to this great book, A Map of Home. Um, Rhonda Gerard is here in the studio. Um, it's so exciting to have you as the first um live interview of the the term thanks I'm excited for to be here kicking us off yeah. here and um okay i want to can i do a shout out please yeah <laughs> yeah i think alex if you want i want to do a shout out to all the peeps i you know i was in my mfa program with so all my peeps if they're listening um and all the people i studied with all the fabulous mentors and teachers. But let's talk about that. Who have been some of your influences that you would say for, for your for the writing? Hmm. I think um, I think definitely I went to Sarah Lawrence, so you know there are teachers there that were so wonderful. Um, 
One of them is called Mary. Her name is Mary Morris, and she writes nonfiction and fiction. And she was very, she was always very supportive and told me, you know, you really need to write this novel. Um, this is back when I was 19, and I tried to write a novel, and it didn't quite work. Yeah. Well, and you started, Sarah Lawrence, you, you mentioned when you were 16, Rhonda, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what an impressionable age, too, yeah, to be working was, with people. That, yeah, that it, young. Was, it was really great. Um, and also to be surrounded by, like, beautiful queer women, too. That was great. Um, was it great? Was it a high point? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, I, oh, other influences, maybe, because you were you were saying for your writing. I think, I mean, I'm, I think I'm influenced, you know, by or or it could even be musicians or, yeah, or things I was gonna for say, your work. What do you listen to? Yeah, things that you feel make a. I think. I mean, I think that you know, growing up in a household where classical music was a big deal. My mom was a pianist in real life too, um, and you know, coming to the U.S. and falling in love with hip hop. Um, I think hip hop, you know, really influences this book too. And there was actually a moment. <laughs> There was a moment when um, there was this sort of tragic, it's not that tragic for me, it was um, a year, maybe a year, a little over a year ago, uh, the person who actually owns Other Press, the publisher, um, wanted to talk on the phone with me and make some edits. And at that point, I'd really just gotten really cranky. I'd made like thousands and thousands of edits. Yeah. And one of them was, uh, she wasn't sure why there was a rap song in one of the chapters (laughs) towards the end. And so I rapped to her. I actually was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to need to break this down for you. Um, so, yeah, I rapped to her, and she was like, okay, we keep it. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Can you remember what rap, what, what, oh. what was, can you do, can you give no. us a demo? No. Come on, come on, <laughs> twist your arm. <laughs> All right. I'll do like a little, I'll do, um, this is from the chapter called Dictations, where Nadali's dad makes her write a bunch of what he calls compositions compositions which you know for her college essays and this is after their their failed attempts at his memoir evergreen oh yeah evergreen terrible title (laughs) (laughs) Um, thank god he didn't write it um okay so this is from the essay composition number nine east is east and west is west or abdel halim versus a tribe called quest so uh in this short yet powerful essay i will attempt to delineate the vast differences in culture yet freakish proximate proximity and purpose of the two musical entities i will do this by quoting the lyrics and placing the words sung by each entity vis-a-vis the other. Okay, so here's the tribe. Well, this has questionable language. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do oh, this one. I'll do this one. Okay. Uh, I'll <laughs> Thank just do you. One, one, one verse and then we'll, yeah. Let me hit it from the back, girl. I won't catch a hernia. Bust off on your couch. Now you got Seema's furniture. So that's the tribe. And then the Abdul Halim is, yes, love has tossed us and had its way with us. So the one who hooked us must help get us off. So that's from an actual Egyptian song from the 60s. So oh, that's all the mm. rapping I'm going to do today. That's very lucky, nice. Lucky, guys. <laughs> Lucky that we got to hear some. Oh, Thank you. Because, I, yeah, I, I also thought it was interesting that the last part of your acknowledgments was also I acknowledge the few historical inaccuracies in the novel. For example, I'm aware that Jay-Z's Big Pimpin' did not appear until 1999. Like, right. I love that that was also the last, like, the last, yeah, the last thing word. in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. It's, it's Big Pimpin' and did not come out till 99. And in the novel, I think it's happening in 92 or 93 that they over here big pimpin and 
big pimpin for those of you. I wish we had it here. Actually, we, uh, we should have play it. Oh, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we'll go out on another song, but that, will, <laughs> that would be our parallel universe. Well, the lovely thing about big pimpin is that it's it's the first time, really, that someone uses a very very famous, you know, a classical Egyptian. A pop song and melds it with a hip hop song. So Jay Z uses this riff from Khosara Yagara, which is this really awesome song by Abdel Halim Hafiz, and he plays it. You know, he loops it in the background while he talks about pimpin, which is hysterical because Abdel Halim is talking very mournfully about his neighbor girl moving away, and he's so sad. The whole song is about how he's in love with her, and I can't believe he's she's leaving. Uh, her her so her, in the classical tradition oh, of yeah. love lost and oh, mooning yeah. over, and the her the, the new the new distance between them is going to cause him to cry many tears, and and <laughs> Jay Z is like I'm a pimpin every sense of the word. You know? Like he's, he's really not, you know, which is, yeah. That's so, actually a brilliant maneuver, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't credit Abdel Halim, so. Oh, um, so, oh that's not so good. No. Um, but, you know. That's uh, terrible, actually. <laughs> for shame, Jay-Z, if for you're shame, listening. Jay-Z. This is, yeah. Well. Like the wag of the finger, man. Yeah. Um, so, but I remember how great it was to listen to that song. First time I heard it, I was in Alexandria, Egypt, and there was this like really cute guy. God, that's the theme of today. <laughs> Hello, boyfriend Russell, I love you. <laughs> You're cute. Um, Another shout anyway, out. This in guy there. was in a, a little cassette store because everything was on cassette. I think it's still on cassette. Um, and I bought this this big pimpin cassette. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I love it when it's like this really cool melding of you know east and west, but it's done in a way that's that's perfect. It's it's they're they're perfectly uh, you know ma- well matched and they're it makes for a great song because you know. Um, the beat. It's all about the beat. It's all about this this underlying rhythm that doesn't, I mean, I hope this isn't hokey, but that doesn't have, you know, uh, any sort of directional, you know, allegiance. It's all about the beat mm. and life and vitality. And that's one thing that I really wanted to put into this novel was like this idea that there is vitality and there's life um, in the culture that I grew up in and, and the culture that I live in now. So, yeah. Yeah, and so that and that's what's unifying the song, as well. Even mm-hmm. though they're so, uh, they seem on the surface so juxtaposed with each other, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so opposed. Mm-hmm. But the beat is, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I think you've done it here in your oh, novel. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. Um, a little bit about your your website before we go, because uh, I think we're 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 marching on towards our our final moments together. <laughs> um, tears. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> If only we could we could have, um, but your your website because I noticed that you started the blog um, some years ago. Mm-hmm. But how would it be five years ago, Rhonda? Or? I think it was four years ago, and I think it was on Valentine's. I was extremely bitter. <laughs> a great time to start the blog. Yeah, someone had I'd gone to San Francisco and seen some performance somewhere, and uh, one of the performances was this woman marrying herself in a mirror it was I mean it sounds awful but it was kind of hysterical and then she tossed the bouquet and I looked away and of course it like smacked me right in the face and landed in my lap <laughs> and so the whole well, night that isn't an omen <laughs> the whole night people were saying are you the one who caught the bouquet <laughs> well it was 
so I ended up catching this bouquet that this woman who was marrying herself had thrown. <laughs> so it was very bitter. It was Valentine's Day. And I was like, I'm going to start a blog where I sort of try to elegantly complain about the, you know, the lack of certain things in my life. So uh, that was four years ago. And then I, it's great because you can go back and see, you know, all the different, um, like the journey that this book took too. That's why I was asking yeah. you, Rhonda, because it was also, it seems like would fall into that lull time with the book mm-hmm. where you still, you hadn't heard anything back. People had given you some feedback, but not, it was before other press took it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So was this a way also of building community? Is there, would you, because yeah. it sounds like you have correspondence, you said with one of your long time readers. Does yeah. that mean from your blog along or? Yeah, from my blog and from uh, stories that I've put up online too. So yeah, it was really great before I before I came to Ann Arbor. Before I came to the U, um, yeah, there was I I had maybe a couple of writer friends in in real life, and then all my writer friends were you know online. So there were people who had other blogs or people who'd written and published stories online. So that was really important for me because I didn't have that many people you know very many people to share stuff with. And I ended up sharing the first draft of my novel with you know some guy in Canada, a friend in Atlanta, people who I hadn't actually met in real life read the first draft of the book so wow um, but yeah that's so kind of amazing isn't it yeah because then you so. out you out you know the only way you know each other is from your little literally your words that you're writing back and yeah. forth to each other and then the the novel itself so there's nothing clouding it it's between them and the 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 fiction yeah, yeah. and there was this really healthy sense of I don't. I feel. I feel like there is a little bit of competition in that world, but it just seems really healthy. And and um, maybe it's because you know people aren't. I think it's the absence of the physical that that creates that really healthy um, exchange. And so that was really cool. And um, and to meet those people now. I mean, when I was at Blue Stockings in New York, a couple of people maybe three or four people who I'd been emailing with or who have blogs came and I got to meet them. And I've known them for like years and I've never actually seen them. So and this was the first in my person. Reading. Yeah. It was so nice to see them and to connect, you know, the, you know, the face with the, with the email address. <laughs> <laughs> now that's probably going to be more and more common to say that, that phrase, right? Yeah. Like the face with the, not just the name, but the, the face with the Facebook profile. <laughs> Or something. Okay, we'll we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel and today Rhonda Gerard. We'll be back.
welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers today around a jar and I'm T Hetzel and uh and it seems like we're in sort of a time warp here on the show this afternoon uh Rhonda's got me all coming and going or something like that <laughs> it's been such a great um conversation I really enjoyed oh, speaking with I you I love talking to you it's so fun uh, well thank you and come come back yeah come back. and um Maybe we should have a roundtable living writers at some point, you know, and, and have many voices. Uh, yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know, and arm wrestling, something like that. Yes. <laughs> now we're talking. Uh, um, and so could you tell us a little bit about the music we've been hearing? Because right when we, right before we started the program, we, we dashed in to That's have a look certain. on the shelves. And Reverend Andrew helped us pick some off the, <laughs> yeah. the world music section. I think um, the Natasha Atlas, the one that we started with. Um, the song I Put a Spell on You. It's basically the remake of the Screaming Jay Hawkins song where she she's singing in English, but she's using a sort of Arabic... Um, I don't see a daughter of a musician bad. Um, <laughs> there's something about the intonation. There's something about her voice that sounds Arabic, but she's actually speaking words in English. So and I love that. And then there's a scratching like records in the background with like Arabic percussion and Arabic instruments so i love that again the sort of meld the nice little mix between east and west yes and then the other album actually um alex Bellhodge, the engineer he was pleased to see it because it's a memory from his childhood what could you tell us a little bit about that album and that's what we'll be going out on too though. yeah at khalid uh, he's his name is sheb khalid he's a north african rye singer and um this is like i think one of the earlier albums and it's just it, it just reminds me of you know when i first touched down on texas like that was the album that I was listening to. I was 20 and I wasn't sure if I was really going to, you know, um, end up writing or if I was going to go the academic route. And thankfully I went the writing route. So yes, yeah, almost definitely. <laughs> well, thank you, Rhonda. Thanks for having me, T. Um, again, so lovely. Oh, <laughs> Rhonda Gerard, A Map of Home. Rhonda will be reading Monday, September 15th, Shaman Drum, 7 p.m. Uh, again, her book, A Map of Home. Thanks to Alex. Thanks for listening. Ann Arbor, to all those streaming in Florida, Seattle, Chicago, Chicago. Um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. J'ai dit
Sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball swing and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Howell doing everything he can here to keep the game alive for his team. Feldkamp still working off the stretch. Yeah, so since he came on. Jeff Gunkel flashes out the sign. Setting up outside. 2-2 pitch swing and a miss. He struck him out and the ball game is over. Derek Feldkamp strikes out Jacob Howell on a 2-2 curveball. The Buckeyes are retired in the ninth. They leave two on. The final score here at Ray Fisher Stadium. The first ever night game played at the pitch. Michigan 11 at Ohio State 3.
Testing, testing, testing.